Our show today is brought to you by Dolby Voice. Today's offices need workspaces that allow small teams to collaborate effectively. Enter the Huddle Room. Those are those small conference areas designed for meetings. Well, for effective collaboration, Huddle Rooms need capabilities like video conferencing. And even with great video capabilities like HD cameras, a lousy audio experience can still derail otherwise productive huddle meetings. That's where Dolby Voice and the Dolby Conference Phone come in. They deliver stunning audio clarity and 360-degree audio capture that, that actually allows everyone to be heard and makes meetings easy to follow and participate in, just like you guys are in the same room. The result is that conversations flow naturally. Now, you need to hear this Dolby Voice and the Dolby Conference Phone in order to believe it. So we've got a special offer for you guys. Just go to dolby.com slash tesh and you get to hear Dolby Voice today. You get the demo today. Dolby.com slash tesh. Hello and welcome to another episode of Intelligence for Your Life, the podcast. I'm Gib Gerard here with John Tesh today. We have a very special treat. As you are fully aware, our informal book club has been reading Barking Up the Wrong Tree by Eric Barker. Well, today we actually have Eric Barker on the show. We are very excited to have him. So without further ado, here is our interview with Eric Barker. So uh, Gib and I are sort of in a, in a, uh, a self-actualized uh, book club. Where we just we, we, we recommend self actualized makes it sound so I don't even know what that I don't even know what that means, <laughs> but uh, we thought we do. I try to make up a vocab word to impress you, um, but uh, oh, I love this book, Barking Up the Wrong Tree. I'm really you know the radio show that we do, uh, along with this podcast, is, is a lot about about what apparently a lot of people want to hear about these days is just sort of hacking your own body into into greatness, um, and I have to tell you that your your blog. Is I must read each one of those. Blog oh my gosh, I love it! They're so fantastic, and and we'll go through that a little bit in a in, in a minute. Um, but how, how did you get started? What was the idea behind barking up the wrong tree? Uh, I mean, I was at a crossroads in my life, and I was you know I was I was making a huge career shift, and I I wanted some answers, and so I figured, hey, you know, it's like let me. Let me start looking at, you know, as as legit as we can get. Let me start looking at scientific studies, and then I started interviewing experts. And just trying to figure out, there's this great quote I love from William Gibson, where he says, uh, the future's already here. It's just not evenly distributed. <laughs> and, you know, it's like there's an these questions we all wonder about. There are answers to them, but they're buried in these dusty academic journals or, or experts know them, but they're they're not, you know, they don't have a they don't have a big audience. And uh, I just wanted to get these things out there. And with the book, I just, you know, there's all these maxims of success that we grow up with. Nice guys finish last. It's not what you know, it's who you know. And and they're pithy and, and cute and clever. But but are they really true? So I wanted to give them the Mythbusters treatment, look at the research and talk to the experts and, and see if the stuff is real or not. Yeah. So you, you started some of this research for your own edification? I mean, that's the thing is, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't have, I don't have all the answers. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to find them. You know, it's like, so I, I consider my readers to be on a journey with me where I'm, I'm trying to find out the answers myself. I want to be happier. I want to be more productive. I want to be more <laughs> successful. So, so I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, talk to the, the people who are doing the research or read the, read the, uh, the, those, uh, those difficult, uh, academic studies or the books and, and I'll find answers for myself and I'll, and I'll share them with everybody who, who cares to read them. So let's follow up on that. You talk about uh, you know being a, a mythbuster. What what is the most dangerous myth that you uncovered with your research? I mean that that idea. I think that you know that nice guys finish last because uh, Adam Grant did uh, research. Adam's a very nice guy himself. He's also a, a professor at uh, the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. And what was funny was when he when he initially did the research, he saw there was a ton of nice guys across a number of fields, uh, you know, at the bottom of success metrics. And this was really depressing because, you know, Adam's such a nice guy. But when he when he looked at the full results of the data, what he saw was it was bimodal. In other words, there was a lot of nice guys at the bottom and a huge number of nice guys at the top. Mm. And and once you you think about that, it actually makes sense because we all know somebody who's too nice, goes out of their way, gets exploited, and and they they end up not doing succeeding for themselves because they're too busy helping other people. But we all also know somebody who's really fantastic, who everybody loves, mm -hmm. everybody feels indebted to, and people go out of their way to help them. So we, we it makes sense that there are some nice guys at the bottom, some nice guys at the top, because we have our 
martyrs, and we also have our, our people that everybody rushes to support. So jerks just sort of tend to uh, coagulate at middle management. Is that your point? You, you, you see a lot of uh, the Adam breaks it into uh, to givers, people who, who selflessly give to others, matchers, people who try to keep an even balance of give and take and takers, people who try to get as much and give little back. Mm-hmm. And uh, and yeah, you see the givers at the, at the very top and the very bottom and both the matchers and the takers kind of cluster in the center. What did you learn about yourself through all, all this research, Eric? Oh boy, uh, a lot. Um, you know, uh, re- in the first, uh, the first, the first uh, chapter of the book, I talk about the idea of you know following the rules. Should you should you follow the rules, or should you be a you know should you be a rule breaker? And uh, and you know, and I've always felt that I was a little bit different. That I was a little bit you know of kind of an alien in a lot of ways. I didn't I didn't feel. And I realized that there is a place you know for for people who who do things a little bit differently, who think a little bit differently. But those people need to choose their environments very carefully to make sure that the companies they work for, the groups they're in. Uh, are supporting, you know, those those different characteristics you hold. And so that was very encouraging to me. I hope it's encouraging other people. The other thing I realized was the sixth chapter, I talk about work-life balance. And uh, and I realized that, man, I better change what I'm doing because I'm a little bit of a workaholic and I, I'd hate to publish this book and look like a hypocrite. Can you can you uh, dig in a little bit to the, uh, one of my favorite chapters is, is, is chapter one. I lo- of course, uh, I'm a, in another life, I'm a piano player. So I love, love, love the piano prodigy story uh, and uh, you guys have to get the book so you can read that story but but the insight uh, from valedictorians can you dig into that a little bit for for uh, because it's it really turns things on the on, on their head for me Oh, absolutely. Karen Arnold, uh, a researcher at Boston College, uh, followed valedictorians uh, through school and into their their lives after graduation. And, you know, valedictorian, every mom wants their kid to be a valedictorian. You know, I mean, it it makes sense. uh, But but what it turns out is that valedictorians, they do well. They do quite well. They get professional degrees and they, they live successful lives. But they don't end up being the people who run the world or really change the world. Hmm. And that is because school has clear rules. Uh, you check the boxes, answers the questions correctly, get A's and you're fine. Life is much more messy. There are tons of options in life where school is, is, is pretty regimented. You can be an entrepreneur in life. You can't entrepreneurially handle high school. Um, so <laughs> independent uh, what, study, independent <laughs> study, <laughs> maybe for one class. Um, but, but so, so basically what you see is that school rewards following those rules and people who don't follow the rules don't do as well, but those are the same people who start new companies, who try new things, who are more creative. So, you know, so school, you know, those people do well, but they don't usually reach the very top of success metrics. The other issue that's relevant is that school teaches you to be a generalist while, while life usually rewards mastery in a particular subject. If you, mm. if you really, you know, if you really love math, Um, then in school, you know, you have to stop studying math to study English and history and these other things. It it doesn't pushes you towards towards splitting your time over a bunch of different subjects. Whereas if you love math and you spend all your time on math, and you're great at math. Hey, you got a job at Google. They're going to love you. They don't care, you know, how well you do in English and history. Uh, They want you for one particular expertise. Mm -hmm. And so that's what you see as well, is that they're usually not the absolute top performers in their field, the valedictorians, because school teaches them to be generalists. So you keep talking about this idea of being a rule breaker, and uh, you recently did. This is the second time you mentioned it, by the way, is, is, is in this successful principle. But you mentioned you wrote a, a post about being cool, about the science of how to be cool, and one of the things is how to be a rule breaker. So not only will you be better at life, but you'll also be cooler. Uh, it, I mean, it depends because some people who are rule breakers go to prison. Uh, so, so breaking <laughs> rules is not good always, point. Not, <laughs> is not always. Uh, a good thing. But research shows that people who break rules are perceived by others, right or wrongly, they're perceived by others as more powerful because rule, because people who can break rules and get away with it, you know, usually have, you know, some amount of power. So breaking rules is perceived by others uh, as a, as an indicator of power and power, as we know, is usually pretty cool. <laughs> so, um, so that's one of the reasons why that, that comes up in the, in the research. 
Why, why, why is it that three of my favorite authors, that would be uh, you, uh, Tim Ferriss and Ryan Holiday, why are you guys so uh, interested in the, in the Stoics? And there's a, there's a blog post uh, of yours that I love. Is Here's how to be productive, four secrets from the, from the Stoics. What is it about Stoics that has you guys so on fire? Uh, it's really interesting. I, I think you're totally right. There's been a big resurgence, uh, you know, in the Stoics. And I, I think part of it is, you know, that that basically we, you, you realize when you're somebody who always wants to improve yourself, when you're somebody who wants to get better, you're always going to reach a limit. You're always going to realize there's randomness in the world. And a big part of stoicism, excuse me, is that issue of control. You know, there are things you cannot control in life, but what you can control is your decisions, your attitudes, and and that that ends up giving you, you know, more control. In understanding what you can and cannot control, it 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 relieves anxiety, it makes you makes you relax more. You can and you, and not only that, you can focus your energy on things that will produce mm. results as opposed to worrying about stuff that that is completely outside your 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 control and is just going to make you you anxious and frustrated. Is that that that's that effort versus outcome principle? Exactly. You can control how much you practice. You can control how much you do. But, you know, you, you can never control an outcome. There's just too many factors. There's too much randomness in life. And and, you know, again, think of how much you more how much better you can focus, how much you know more you can put into something once you accept that there are some things you cannot control. And worrying about them is, is useless. You need to accept that if you can do something, do it. But but you need to accept that. Um, because what's also really fascinating about stoicism is if you look at probably the biggest, uh, form of, 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 uh, of in, in terms of psychiatry and psychology, cognitive behavioral therapy is probably the, the biggest thing out there, huge effectiveness, uh, for helping people get over, uh, a lot of, uh, you know, mental health issues like depression, mm. anxiety. And one of the, the guys who was really responsible for that, Albert Ellis, uh, he actually took that from the Stoics. The Stoics actually ended up influencing what is one of the biggest methods for, for helping people with mental health issues today. So, so the Stoics, it's not just dusty old philosophy. You know, it is currently being used, shown, and proven in research studies to be effective in helping people deal with depression, anxiety, anger, you know, it's really powerful stuff that that's got good scientific research behind it. So John and I listen to like th- or or read four different authors that all derive from the Stoics. I'm in the middle of Marcus Aurelius's uh, Meditations right now, which is a, a big primer of, of of the Stoic philosophy. I, I watch Gladiator four times a week, so that, <laughs> I, I, I watch that Marcus Aurelius. So, so I'm kind of in it. Can you give our audience a primer for what Stoicism is in modern terms, like you know where it came from and, and what it means now? Absolutely. A, a big, a big, there's, there's a number of different, you know, authors, a number of different ideas, but you know, what is truly critical in terms of stoicism, you know, is first that idea of control, knowing what you can control and what you, and what you can control. And the, the second thing I would say is really important is distinguishing, you know, what is, what is real and true from, from your perceptions, your impressions of things. And, you know, that first element, that issue of control, you know, that's where we get into to a lot of trouble. When you when you start when we get angry, when we get frustrated, it's usually because we are telling ourselves that we have control over something that we shouldn't or we should. When you shake your fist in traffic, you can't control traffic. You know, you you, you cannot make all those cars move. Oh, I wish I could. Oh, we, we all wish we could, but that's where, and this is, this is the, the cognitive behavioral therapy. This is what they pulled from stoicism is you don't have control over traffic. And once you accept that, you can say, okay, there's nothing I can do about it. But when you start feeling like I should have control over this, I should, Hmm. those, those cars should not be there. You're basically telling the universe, you know, my, my, my impressions, my ideas are more important than that are more powerful than reality. (laughs) And that's not the case. And that's when you get frustrated when you realize, Hey, you know, I, I, I cannot impose my will. You know, I can, I can try and do things. I can try and change things, but if I don't have control, but you think you should, and those key, those words are key. Albert Ellis said, you've got to eliminate the words should and must 
from your vocabulary because because you can't tell reality. The cars should all move. No, they shouldn't. They're there and they're not going anywhere until they decide to. And this person, they must do this. No, they don't have to do this. And you can't make someone do something. And the minute you start eliminating should and must from your vocabulary, you're going to be a lot less frustrated, a lot less anger, angry, and you're going to focus on either finding a, finding a way in your power to improve your situation or accepting what you cannot change. Well, so Marcus Aurelius and Epictetus and those guys, they didn't, they didn't have any traffic. What, were they, what did they have to relax about? What did they have to stoicize about? I mean, frankly, the biggest, the weather, uh, other people, (laughs) you know, other people is probably, is probably the biggest, the biggest, uh, you know, frustration a lot of people deal with. You, you can't make other people that you can, you can negotiate, you can ask politely, um, you can yell and scream, uh, but you can't make someone do something. And when you start using those words, should and must, uh, all you're going to do is get yourself frustrated and probably do things again, like yelling and screaming that that aren't going to be terribly effective as opposed to to accepting. And by accepting, I don't mean caving and giving in. I mean, saying, hey, I can't make them do something. Mm. I have to realize that. But once I, I realize I can't make them, then you can take your energy and turn it towards all right, so how could I influence them? How can I negotiate with them? What can I do to, to get them to see my point of view, which is a much more rational perspective as opposed to they should, they should, they're supposed to, mm-hmm. and that doesn't get you anywhere. My five-year-old is currently struggling with that. I mean, <laughs> I'm still struggling with it, but my five-year-old is too. This uh, I, well, I think the, the difference there is it's like your, your five-year-old should be, should be struggling with it. <laughs> right. uh, you know, it's like, I mean, I, I struggle with it myself and I always have to, I always have to remind myself, you know, these things are not in my control. What, what might actually improve my situation? So a lot of the books that I've read, uh, even just over the last uh, couple of years, I really enjoyed Angela Duckworth's Grit, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Because I because I had average. Gib, Gib had uh, near perfect uh, uh, SATs. Mine were really average, so I've always sort of operated on on grit. But when things would get tough or things would go sideways, I would always just apply more grit. And so when I got to your chapter about knowing when to quit, it was fascinating to me. Can you go over some of that? Yeah, uh, uh, Gabriel Ettingen did some research at uh, at NYU, and she came up with this great little acronym, uh, WOOP, uh, W-O-O-P. Yes. Uh, because, the, because the issue here is that many of us, we all dream about getting the things we want, but what we don't realize is the research shows that dreaming doesn't give you energy, it actually saps your energy. You're your your brain is not very good at telling uh, reality from from you know from what's on TV. That's why movies are thrilling because because you know for a second our brain thinks it could be real. So you know dreaming actually makes our brains think we already have what we want and it saps our energy. Now that doesn't mean dreaming's bad. It just means you need to do a couple other things to get where you want to go. So WOOP, W-O-O-P, is the first step is wishing, that's dreaming, wishing about what you want. The second thing is outcome. That means thinking about a concrete outcome. What do you actually want to get? Once you've specified that, something that's attainable, the third thing, and this is the tricky part, is the obstacle. What's standing in the way of you getting that? Once you've clearly identified what the problem is, then the fourth, the fourth letter, P, is plan. You can find a plan to try and overcome that. Now, that's a great little way to, to build a plan. The, the technical term is implementation intentions. But it's a, it's a great little way to make a plan. But the, the really interesting element of this is that what Ettingen found was that when people go through the WHOOP exercise, wish, outcome, obstacle, plan, if they feel energized, those are the things you want to apply grit to. If they feel like, great, I've got a plan, this can work, I can do this, those are the things you want to apply grit to. If you go through the WHOOP exercise and you feel like, oh, geez, I don't, I don't know, and you feel low energy, those are the things where often what you want might really be out of reach or your plan might not be, you know, that realistic. And those are the things where you either want to rethink, you know, what you want. You want to rethink your plan or you want to put that aside and you want to focus your energy somewhere else. So it, uh, that, that actually brings up an interesting point. So there's a, there's a stoic notion of beliefs underlying feelings and it, it kind of applies to Whoop in this way because because you talk about in one of your blog posts how beliefs under underlie feelings is actually a good way to fight procrastination. This notion is a good way to unpack procrastination. Uh, I mean, absolutely. With you know, uh, 
this is a lot of the, you know, the issue of beliefs underlying feelings, you know, was dates back to the Stoics. But like I said, this is used modern day in cognitive behavioral therapy uh, to, to help people. Because, you know, if I, if, I, if I pull something out of my jacket and to you it looks like a, a real gun, you would be scared. Yeah. If I pulled out something out of my jacket and it looked like a water gun, you would not be scared. Now, the actual reality, what I pulled out of my jacket may not have changed between the two scenarios. Mm -hmm. It's your perception mm -hmm. of, oh, my God, that's a gun, makes you scared. Oh, my God, it's a water gun. You know, who cares? Um, it's your belief about that. You, if you, if you want to if, if go to the beach, you know, a rainy day is a really terrible thing. If, you, if, if your friend wants to go to the beach and you don't feel like going to the beach, a rainy day is a great thing. Right. So <laughs> the actual reality didn't change. But your impression of it is what created the emotions that followed. So when we and we can't change reality all the time, but we can always change our perspectives, our impressions, you know, and that's really critical that those impressions, that story you tell yourself, you know, that's what produces the emotions. And once you you start to get that, you know, uh, one research study showed that uh, in terms of procrastination, when using, instead of using the terminology, I have to, that makes it feel, something feel like work, it mm -hmm. makes it feel difficult, you procrastinate. Mm -hmm. Using the phrasing, I get to, <laughs> means I have the opportunity to, it reframes it, it tells a different story, it's a different impression, and it's something that maybe you can be excited about, as opposed to dreading, putting off, and watching TV instead of doing it. You know, something that's been very popular uh, lately is, uh, and I think Joseph Murphy started it years ago with his book, The Power of the Subconscious Mind, and there's uh, Jack Trout's success principles, uh, I'm sorry, Jack Canfield's success pr principles about manifesting is that, you know, if you can, if you can just every day, you know, write down what you want, look at it every day, imagine it, uh, imagine that you've already, uh, got it. Um, it's sort of that, that goal setting, but then, but then, uh, just, uh, accepting the fact that it's already happened to you. Uh, how do you feel about that concept? How is that, is that a dangerous way to, to reach a real goal in your life? Uh, I mean, I would have to say that, like I said, the, the uh, engine's work on Whoop would, would disagree with that, would say that, you know, feeling like you already have it right. is not going to muster the energy for you to go out there and get it. If you're not considering the obstacles, you know, in the way of you getting it and making a plan to deal with them, then I, 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 I would question that because it looks like the research is saying, you know, feeling you know, that if you're going to wish about something, you need to think about, you know, what exactly is it that I want, what's standing in the way, and how am I going to overcome that, as opposed to, to merely wishing. Uh, I don't know if that's, that's really going to resolve the issue. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to tell you the Navy SEAL secrets to self-motivating, as well as what you can learn from stand-up comedians in your daily routine. Don't miss it. I just want to remind you guys that the show today is brought to you by Dolby Voice, a phenomenal audio conferencing. They are the guys that invented surround sound, Dolby 5.1. These guys know what they're doing, and they have taken that expertise, and they have blown up the conference call world. Right? Everybody needs to do conference calls, and they can be some of the worst things in the world because you can barely hear each other. You spend your whole time going, hey, I can't hear you. Hey, there's noise on the line. Well, that's where Dolby Voice and Dolby Conference Phone come in. It is a breakthrough audio technology that sets a new standard for what you can expect conferencing to sound like. The Dolby Conference Phone brings full room 360-degree audio capture, which means that whether you're at the whiteboard or in the back of the room, you have a microphone pointed at you that sounds absolutely perfect. It delivers stunning audio quality that allows everybody to be heard. It makes the meetings easy to follow, easy to participate in. And the most important thing, the technology disappears. The result is conversations that flow naturally. You're not thinking whether or not stuff is working. You're just thinking about the ideas. And that is what you need to make innovation increase. And it makes widely dispersed teams become that much more effective. Additionally, Dolby Voice and the Dolby Conference Phone are now integrated with leading video conferencing solutions such as Blue Gene Huddle. You have to hear it to believe it. So check out Dolby Voice today. Visit dolby.com slash tesh for a free demo. That's dolby.com slash tesh. So Eric, um, 
you, you talk about Navy SEALs and in, in, um, oh, yeah. in barking up the, the wrong tree. But there, there seem to be, you know, on the Amazon bestseller list, there seem to be so many Navy SEAL books right now. Why, why do you think? What, why, why are we all of a sudden discovering what the Navy SEALs do? It's it's interesting to me because uh, because uh, I my friend James Waters uh, is a former Navy SEAL platoon commander and uh, it's something that I thought about because initially I was looking at all these research studies for the blog and then I decided to broaden a bit uh, because I had some I I was lucky enough to have some interesting friends who were experts in a field that had demonstrated results but didn't necessarily have academic research behind it so for instance. You know, when I wanted to write about negotiating, I looked at there's plenty of research on negotiating, but I also talked to my friend Chris, Chris Voss, who was former lead international hostage negotiator for the FBI. And he wow. has, you know, obviously demonstrated results. He's saved lives with this. So I thought talking to experts, uh, there was another post I did on uh, how to stay calm under pressure. And uh, I've got a friend who's a former uh, Navy bomb disposal expert. So if you want to talk about <laughs> staying calm under pressure, you know, what can we learn from these experts in the field where, where maybe they don't have uh, this peer-reviewed research behind them, but they have demonstrated results in very difficult, high-performing situations. And I think that's some of what we're seeing. Obviously, you know, Navy SEALs, it's exciting. You know, it's like the movies. But also, you're talking about, of you know, very rigorous. BUDS is a very rigorous process. In the book, I talk about pool comp, which is one of the most difficult things that uh, that Navy SEALs have to get through in their in their vetting process. Uh, so I think there's there's an element there where we can learn something. What's also interesting is that uh, after 9-11, uh, the, the military wanted more SEALs, but obviously they couldn't lower standards because that would defeat the purpose. So they started doing some research in terms of trying to figure out, you know, what was it that allowed people to to get through uh, to get through BUDS. So so actually you had you got this perfect combination of, you know, this intense process, these high performing individuals, uh, so realistic insights from them, but also uh, getting some of the uh, of the academic research showing, you know, what's behind this, what's making these guys, uh, you know, perform so well. So I was excited about that because it was the, the combination of two things I love, expert insight mm -hmm. uh, and the uh, and uh, the uh, the academic research. Uh, Dude, piggybacking on the idea of, of Navy SEALs, you wrote a thing uh, recently, a blog post about, uh, about motivating yourself, and, and you say to talk to yourself like a Navy SEAL commander would, or a special ops leader. And there's like five questions you have to ask yourself and that you tell yourself, and that, that seems to be some distillation of, of the research that, that was done there. Yeah, I mean, motivation is, is, is fascinating. Uh, the... Um you know what you what you typically see across the board is that uh, is that you know m that motivation is uh, Dan Pink did uh, an excellent book on it called Drive where he talks about the key elements being autonomy, mastery, and purpose. You know, and when I, in my post I talked about um, uh, Stanley McChrystal, uh, retired four-star general, uh, in terms of the uh, the pep talk that he gives to motivate soldiers. And, uh, you know, he talked about, you know, first saying, you know, what, what, it, what does he want them to do? Giving them an idea of why this is important, giving them a reason why he knows they can do it, saying, you know, giving them examples of how they've done something similar in the past. This is, this is not insurmountable. It's, it's analogous to something they've done before. And then saying, let's get out there and do it. You know, and, and there's, and now again, that's something from experts, not necessarily academic academic research, but again, this is something done with with high performing people, and you can see how some of the research you know underlies that in terms of giving people grounded evidence in terms of you know what's critical about this, why it's important, and this is actually uh, comparable uh, to some of the research uh, where uh, Teresa Mobley at Harvard did research on this, and she found that the most motivating thing there is in the workplace is for people to feel that they are making progress in meaningful work. If somebody feels like they're moving forward in something that's important, uh, that's the single most motivating thing. And, this, and the single most demotivating thing is to feel like they're not making progress or to feel like what they're doing doesn't make a difference. Wow. And you know, you you actually blogged about this, uh, and I'm reading a book. If you can't the, tell, we love your blog. Yeah, it's, the blog is just <laughs> so you. it's so tremendous. And oh, you know what? We should talk about that just a second because you know Gib was asked. I mean, I, I was asking Gib 
uh, Baca de Suyo is <laughs> dot com yeah. is your is your is your blog. What's the since nobody will remember that? For, 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 uh, how do we how do we find you? What's the easiest way on your blog? So, uh, is, is, uh, the easiest way for people to find me is if they if they Google barking up the wrong tree right, blog, right, or right, if they right. Google my name Eric Barker, uh, it'll come up. The uh, yeah the URL URL uh, that I chose was was not the best marketing decision <laughs> on my part. Yeah, uh, yeah, had you had a cocktail before that one, Eric? Is it, uh, what? It's it. Well, what's funny is uh, where that came from is uh, in undergrad uh, I studied Japanese as my language, and what I found out the first day of of Japanese class is that my last name means moron in Japanese. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I'm 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 totally honest here. My last name means moron, and uh, uh, in the Japanese language they typically only use last names. Uh, so, so basically for me to say, I am Barker and for me to say, I am an idiot are the same sentence. Well, that's good. That's fantastic. Uh, so I've never had a Japanese person forget my name. In fact, they seem to love saying it. Yeah. Just go just, just, uh, whether you're, yeah, just going to Google and write Eric Barker and you'll be good or Barker, you're that's, the wrong. That's the, the, that's, right the that's the most efficient way. Uh, Laura Vanderkam wrote a book that I liked, uh, called what the most successful people do uh, before breakfast. And it turned me on to the thing about, I need to get up and, and give with with three kids under five years old. You know, is is all about this. I got to get up early, uh, otherwise I'm just not going to have uh, get anything done uh, during the day. I'm not going to get any uh, have any traction. What did your research say about about mornings? Um, you see a disproportionate, you know, number of, of successful people um, did you know do wake up early. Now there's some people who are who are night people. But uh, Dan Ariely uh, did a lot of research right, on this yeah. at Duke University, and what he saw was that our brains are sh usually sharpest about uh, an hour, hour and a half after waking up. So not immediately after you roll out of bed, but people are far more productive during during those, that like an hour, you know, hour, hour and a half after waking up. Uh, you just get a lot more done, and I think that's something that's really important. Because we spend a lot of time focusing on hours, on saying how many hours. Mm -hmm. And the truth is, some, you know, all hours are not created the same. We all know that, right. you know, sometimes those hours when you got your coffee, you're ready to go, you know, you're, you're really cranking stuff out. And then you got the, that hour or two after lunch, you're a little sleepy, it's not so much. So all hours are not created the same. And uh, like I said, Dan Ariely's research showed that about an hour, hour and a half after you wake up is, is really when your brain's the sharpest. So you want to put the important activities then. You don't want to spend that time, uh, you know, uh, playing video games or, or surfing around on Facebook. And uh, and so, you know, mornings, you know, in terms of that, whenever your morning is, an hour, an hour and a half. Unless you're a professional up, video game player. If you're a professional I, video game player, play the video games during that time. I, I, absolutely. That's, that's, that, that would be key Call of Duty time if you're, uh, if you're a professional video game player. You were, I, I interrupted you, though. You were saying what you need to do in those hours. No, no, no. Just that, just that, uh, just that. Knowing that, you know, it's it's better to prioritize tasks that are are more, you know, more cognitively intensive or more important to uh, to really get done. Uh, you know, that that would be a better time for it in general. You know, your um, your 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 journeys through the the data world and data mining took you to um, comedians. What did you? There's a, there's a chapter. I think it's right, uh, chapter four or five. What what did you learn from top uh, comedians studying what they do? Well, it's really interesting because, you know, I mean, comedians do a lot to make things seem, you know, natural and almost improvisational. Uh, but that's not really how comedians work. Uh, you know, Chris Rock, that that one hour uh, HBO special you see that's like nonstop laughs. Uh, that's, you know, six months to a year of workshopping where he goes up, he goes to a comedy, a comedy club unannounced and, uh, you know, try some jokes out and most of them bomb, but some of them do good. And, you know, some, he tries a different angle that works better. That works worse. He's testing and testing and testing. And after six months to a year of testing material, that's when you get that drum tight, you know, joke, joke, joke that lands every time is after six months to a year of testing. And we can all learn something from that. Uh, Peter Sims wrote an excellent book called little bets, you know, about really just, you know, testing things, seeing what works, trying a bunch of different things, in some ways almost treating our time like a, like a venture capital firm does, where they invest in 10 companies and they expect seven of them to fail. They expect two of them to break even, but they expect one to be the next Google or Facebook. Mm. And playing it too tight, not trying new things, the world's changing really fast. We need to run these little low-cost, 
you know, low resource investments to, to, you know, to create new opportunities, to, to, to meet new people, to find a new job by, you know, just spending these, making little bets just like comedians do, you know, that's how you can find the next big thing. That's, uh, you talk about, uh, you, you wrote recently about minimum viable effort, which sort of seems to be taking little bets and applying it to, to habit forming. Can you, can you explain what minimum viable effort is and, and how you can apply it to your life? Yeah, uh, this is a researcher, uh, BJ Fogg at Stanford. And uh, I think this is, it's just an excellent concept where you're trying to build new habits um, you know, the important thing here is consistency, because if it's not consistent, it's not a habit. Um, so the most important thing is, you know, being consistent about it, getting it done every day. But we don't want it to be this huge, impossible thing that we're dreading. So you want to start flossing your teeth, you know, consistently. OK, floss one tooth. <laughs> Just focus on flossing one tooth. You have made it so simple that you're going to kick. You could you could do it in two seconds. So there's no excuse not to. You're going to feel stupid if you don't. So floss one tooth. And then once you've done that for a week or two, hey, try two teeth. <laughs> and, you know, and that's the issue when people say they want to read more books. Okay, fine. Read one page a day. Don't set some enormous goal of I'm right. going to read a book a week and I'm going to. No, read one page a day. And then once you've got that consistent, make it two pages a day. And that incremental progress, but you make the bar for success so low that there is that that you'll kick yourself if you don't do it. That's a great way to get consistent. And once it's consistent, you can start expanding it and growing it to the level you want. That's a lot like weightlifting. I mean, it feels like it fits into whoop really well like on, the, on the P part of whoop, where, where you're able to make those small incremental, uh, overcome those small incremental obstacles like that. Absolutely. You know, that that's the thing is we set these big, big audacious goals and then we end up procrastinating because they're intimidating. Right. So just making it as simple as possible, you get the important part of habit formation, which is consistency. And then it doesn't seem that difficult to read a second page, a third page, you know, and, and grow. I, I personally, uh, I wanted to make sure I was going to the gym every day. So what I did literally was I would, I would make myself go to the gym. I'd step inside and I'd turn around and go home. I wouldn't even, <laughs> you know, but those poor people at the check-in counter. Exactly. And, and it, but it became a habit that I, every day I went to the gym and sure enough, eventually I started actually using some of the machines. Uh, <laughs> but you know, the critical, and that's the critical thing I think for a lot of people is, is not working out. It's, right. it's getting to the gym in the first place. Yeah. hundred yeah. percent. I love the little bets thing because one of my favorite books was the, 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 the book on, um, uh, oh gosh, what's the what's the animation called? Pixar. Oh yeah, the, and the, the Pixar Way is the name the name of the book. And they just they just uh, you know once Steve Jobs got involved and, and Lasseter, they just uh, they threw out all the whiteboards right, and they started making little bets. They made that little that that little uh, video, the animated video with the the lamp and it's mm-hmm. and, the yeah. little, and the lamp kid, and they would uh, they would just do these little, little tiny videos just to see if they would work. And they said, Nah, this isn't going to work. But uh, this toy thing, this Toy Story thing, this will. Uh, this will work. And so they, they also, it was something they called, uh, I think they called it failing quickly or something like, you familiar with that principle? So yeah, you get yep. the failure. Yeah. I, I, I outline that for people who don't know what I'm talking about. No, I mean the idea, you know, it's a, it's a big Silicon Valley, big Silicon Valley maxim is, you know, uh, you know, fail fast and fail cheap. That's it. Yeah. You know, is, you know, get out there, give it a shot, try it, you know, again, kind of minimum viable effort, you know, do a prototype, see if it works. Uh, if it if it functions at the basic level, it's like great. We'll take it to the next level. But as opposed to you know, your first idea is rarely your best idea. Uh, so you know, trying a bunch of things, really cheap, really easy. You know, and and then then you don't have time to procrastinate. You don't waste too many resources. You know, you don't you don't get the get into the sunk costs issue where you end up completing something that you know midway through isn't going to work. So that whole idea, fail fast, fail cheap. You know, if, if if you know, get it out there, give it a shot, see what happens. If it works, great. If not, move on. I wonder if there's some Dr. Jekyll in you, Eric. I mean, are you did you when you started doing the research for this book and of course for your 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 never ending blog. Uh, did you test this stuff on yourself, and what stuff worked and what didn't? Yeah. No, that no, that's a that's a that's a great issue. Um, like I said, uh, for me, definitely, there's been uh, you know a handful of things that have been have been really powerful. Um, that minimum viable effort 
uh, element, you know, is is really, you know, really critical. Just starting small, go go into the gym and then going home, uh, you know, that, that floss one tooth. <laughs> How weirded out are the dental hygienists going to be? Well, this one tooth yeah, looks great, but the rest of your mouth. Yeah, what is it about that molar? <laughs> uh, they, uh, they, you know, I mean, that was really powerful for me. Uh, meditation um, was something, you know, I was initially skeptical of, but you know, meditation has been uh, become really, really, really important for me. I've been and trying to get one, John to do that more with yeah, me. Yeah, let's, let's stop. Let's stop there. Let's stop for a second. So, how did you get for people who want to do this? Because it sounds like you know it's very effective for you, and I've seen it be very effective for Gib. How did you do it? Did you use an app? What 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 procedure did you use? How long did you do it? Things like that. What was the big turning point for me actually was reading uh, Dan Harris's book Ten Percent Happier, which oh, yeah, is yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, which is hysterically funny. is a is a great read just for fun, but it talks about his journey to meditation, which he was incredibly skeptical. Uh, but you know, I, I, after I started looking at this, I looked at the research, it's, it's, it's voluminous. There's tons of research There's you know, many positive benefits. And frankly, you know, it's, it's very simple. Um, you know, all you have to do is, you know, sit down on the couch, be comfortable. You don't need to be cross-legged. You don't, you don't need to sit down on the couch, close your eyes, you know, and just monitor your breath. Your breath goes in, your breath goes out, focus on your breath. The first thing that's going to happen is your mind's going to wander. Once your mind wanders, bring it back to paying attention to, to your breath. And frankly, that is it. Now, it sounds ridiculously simple. Uh, it is the hardest simple thing you will ever do yeah. because your brain will, will just run in every different direction. It'll, 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 it, it will be like a, like a puppy running around. It will be incredibly difficult to control. But if you just return to the breath, breathe in, breathe out. And you're not trying to force your breath. You're following your breath. You want to breathe naturally, but you, you want to pay attention to it. Feel the air come out. Feel the air go in. And it really focuses your attention. And it just it just it really helps you be able to kind of, you know, control your reactive mind where your, your brain is often reacting as opposed to thoughtfully responding. And by training your brain to focus, you know, you're able to just create this gap between any stimulus that comes in, anything that's thrown at you, you know, being able to have that gap where you can sit take a second and thoughtfully respond as opposed to just knee-jerk reacting, mm. which ra rarely produces the best results. Sounds like the Stoics probably meditated a lot, huh? <laughs> well, it's, it, what's funny is that, like, uh, you know, Stoicism was going on, uh, you know, in the, in the West while Buddhism was blowing up in the East, and there's a lot of parallels. That, that They're both very focused on that issue of impressions versus reality. You know, you know what you're, what you, how you are perceiving something as opposed to what is real. Both the Stoics, you know, and the Buddhists were really big on that. So, still in the uh, self-experimentation uh, part of this, uh, I stopped you at, um, at at meditating. What else from this research have you used on your own life? Uh, you know, for for me, what has been you know really really critical is uh, James Pennebaker uh, did some research on expressive writing. Uh, so when people, when you sit down, it's the, it's the, basically it's something that's really powerful whenever you're dealing with a, a big issue in your life. It's, it's especially good, you know, uh, you know, heartache, job loss, tragedy, loss of a loved one. And the research is profound, is amazing for basically trying to get over these very difficult emotional things. And it's again, simplest thing in the world. You know, you sit down for, you know, sit down and for 20 minutes, write about, you know, what you're feeling mm. and do that for, for four days in a row. And, you know, basically what it does is it, it almost recreates kind of the therapy experience mm. because often we ruminate and all the research shows that ruminating is bad, where you're just going over negative thoughts, negative thoughts are swimming around in your head and they generally don't get resolved. But when we write, we have to structure our thoughts. We have to put them in an organized, organized process. We have to tell a story. And that helps us change the story that we're dealing with, the negative story we're telling ourselves that is making, our, making us sad, making us upset. When we actually write it and have to structure our thoughts, we can change that story that we're telling ourselves. It, it's operating you know, to some degree at the subconscious level. We're changing the story that we tell ourselves, mm. and that helps us overcome these big tragedies in life. 
Wow. I mean, it's a <laughs> journaling and meditating. I feel like those are the, those are our two great things we can be doing and they uh, they're so analog. Take a, take us through your uh, your typical day. What time do you wake up? What do you have for breakfast? What do you do? Why are you so successful? We want to do what you do so we can be successful too. <laughs> uh, I you know every day uh, you know I I wake up generally around you know seven or eight or so. Uh, I I get up. I do my best. I usually succeed, but I do my best not to check email, mm. not to uh, not to get on on the internet, and uh, and the first thing I I do is kind of you know, get some coffee. Uh, I will, I will head out to the gym for, uh, for an hour, maybe an hour and a half. Okay. Stop. What Um, kind of workout do you do? Uh, I I'll do generally I'll lift weights for a half hour and I'll spend an hour on the treadmill. Right. Is it, is it guided or do you have your own thing, your own plan? Uh, I've, I basically have my, my own plan. Uh, I, I lift weights about, uh, six days a week, uh, upper body, lower body split. Okay. And, uh, and then I do an hour on the treadmill, basically fast walking. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that kind of gets me out of the Dan Ariely, uh, hour and a half window. Right. Uh, so my brain hopefully is at its sharpest. And that's when I try and get the important work done for the day, uh, like, you know, writing, uh, and, and any kind of, you know, whatever's critical that day, I, tr- I try and get done. I try and reserve mornings for, you know, for getting like the cognitively intensive work done. Um, then after that, what, what for breakfast though? What do you have for breakfast? Uh, for breakfast, I, I eat a very high protein diet. So I, I will, I will generally have, uh, some sort of supplemental, some sort of supplemental protein, uh, in addition to, to maybe something like, like oatmeal or, you know, or I'll pick up, pick up something at Starbucks and, um, and I usually have a latte. So you're talking coffee and a little bit of milk there. Right. Um, that's usually what I start out with. And then, like I said, gym focus on the important, uh, you know, the, the, the work that needs, you know, my, my real brain energy. And then after lunch, I reserve, uh, for, you know, for meetings, uh, for calls, for, uh, for busy work. Uh, then, uh, later in the evening is a lot of reading, a few hours of reading for me to stay up on things. And what I do with, uh, with email and, uh, social media is I batch it. So I generally have three mm. times a day mm, where I'll so go smart. in and I'll do all of that. And then I do my best to, to, to stay out of that. Sometimes I have to dip into my email or something. Some, sometimes something important is coming that I have to check for. So there are exceptions, but I'll batch it three times a day. I do that. And then evenings, uh, are usually either, uh, spent with friends, uh, something to get my mind off of work, uh, or more reading. And uh, I want you to help me uh, with a problem uh, and di- diagnose me because uh, I like to write music. ADD. I, I, yeah. I, li- I like to write music. I like to create stuff. But I, I feel like uh, I spend so much time setting up that I'm, uh, I've, well, I'm procrastinating. So, you, you know, if I'm going to do uh, a Facebook Live or whatever, instead of doing the Facebook Live on Thursday, I'll spend uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and the next two weeks setting up the video thing, you know, yep. <laughs> and the lighting and everything, and I'll never do it. Um, and and as, far as, as far as writing, uh, I'll write at the computer, and I'll just edit myself, uh, you know, to death. Have you, have you been through those experiences, and, and, and what's the cure for me? Um. There, there are definitely some, some, uh, some things you can, you can do. Uh, one meditation, (laughs) (laughs) meditation, uh, but might have some secondary effects, uh, in, 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 in that arena. But, uh, you know, first and foremost, um, you know, uh, Sean Aker has this really fantastic, uh, system. Uh, I, I like, he calls it 20 second rule. And basically he says, whatever I need to do, I make it 20 seconds easier to accomplish. Whatever I don't want to be doing, I make it 20 seconds harder to accomplish. Mm-hmm. So, so in other words, uh, if you shouldn't, if you shouldn't be checking Facebook, you want to, you want to log out. Now I got to type my password. It's really difficult, <laughs> you know, you know, and if there's something that's, that he wants to be doing, you want to practice guitar more often. Okay. Put the guitar right next to the couch where you sit, right. you know, it's going to be much easier. So planning around, if you find, you know, any element of that, which you need to be doing more, 20 seconds easier, anything that you're, 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 you know you're procrastinating with, you're putting off, you know, you make it 20 seconds harder. Now, the second part of that- I deleted the Facebook app from my phone for that reason. I, I didn't I, even I know this rule. 
that's awesome. I, I totally, I do the same thing. No Facebook, no Twitter. Uh, you know, I, I don't even have the, the email app on there unless there's something important. Uh, the second critical thing I would say that's, that's, uh, this is, this one I, I find works. Most people are reluctant to do it, uh, for good reason. But, uh, but basically, um, you know, give, put yourself behind the eight ball. Uh, give give a friend who you who you trust who will hold you accountable. Uh, give them a hundred bucks, and then say I need to do X. And if I don't do X, you keep the hundred bucks. Oh gosh. Or, or even better, even better, uh, you donate that hundred bucks to a organization or charity I hate. <laughs> and and basically, so you could say I'm gonna work. On, I'm I'm gonna set this up. This should take me an hour. I'm going to give myself an hour, maybe an hour and a half. And if I'm not done this by 5.30 p.m., I, I don't get the 100 oh, bucks back gosh. or the 100 bucks goes to the, the organization I hate. Uh, you know, this is a kind of really bulletproof accountability. You know, so anytime you feel like you are taking too long, you're overdoing it, you want to set up some sort of external accountability, uh, you know, that, that doesn't allow you any wiggle room. I mean, that's incredible. I, I got to try the hunting rucks thing, although I'm terrified of doing that. Eric, this has been great. And I, I want to um, not, not only thank you for, uh, for joining us for the, for the podcast, but, um, but also I, I'd love to, you know, to invite you back because we could take any one of your blog posts or any two or three and do, you know, another hour. Uh, Easily. It's, it's great stuff. So um, gosh, and I, I'm, I'm, I don't even, how many people do you have, uh, uh reading your blog now? Do you, do we even uh, know? I got on, on, on email, uh, about 305,000 wow. my email and, uh, there's more people on Facebook, Twitter, RSS, yeah. uh, yeah. whatever, but, uh, but email's my primary mode and, uh, yeah, about, about 300 and 305,000 on your, on your email newsletter, right? Yeah, yeah, I get, I get that. And it's and it's just tremendous. And so, if you just go to Eric, uh, well, we're searching your name. It's bakadesuyo dot com. B a k a. Google Eric Barker. Google Eric Barker. <laughs> Crazy person. I am an idiot. Yeah, yeah, yeah yes, just a moron dot com. Uh, uh, but but what I love about this too is that the the book is just it's it. You know, I I really hate these books where there's no data, where it's just like, hey, do this, do that. Well, what's that based on? You know, so you you really take us through these great stories and. Again, Again, my favorite story is the um, some piano prodigy who brought his own piano stool around, around with him everywhere. It was, it was just so great. Uh, and, You're and, forgetting and, the Toronto raccoon, if that's your that's favorite right. story. Yeah, 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 yeah. But also, also listening to the to the book, and uh, that's the cool thing about Audible. Given I love Audible because we're yeah. able to read and, and and listen at the same time. Exactly. But we'd love to have you back on. And um, absolutely. Uh, any anything anything else that uh, that you would uh, any other way you would like people to connect with you? Because we've got the blog, which I think everybody should read every day. Uh, go get the book, Barking Up the Wrong Tree. I mean, how long is that been out now uh it came out uh may 16th so uh just wow. a little over two months yeah yeah go buy that book i mean it's and or on, on kindle or i have the it's I actually in have, the show notes right now you can yes buy it. yeah that's great uh and do you do you have another book in mind i mean, don't you hate that when people you just released a book and you go hey what's next for you oh i i it's gonna it's gonna be a little while yeah. uh <laughs> yeah. you know that yeah. that that uh that uh, barking up the wrong tree, uh, the book, uh, you know, it took me, uh, uh, you know, almost two years. So it'll, it'll be a little while, but I've definitely got some ideas percolating. I mean, right. you know, with every blog post that comes out, I'm, I'm exposing uh, myself and, and other people to a lot of new information. So, so no, there'll, there will definitely be a follow-up. All right. Eric Barker, thanks again for all of your time. And it's really been, it's been an honor to have you. I, I, Th I'm, I'm, I'm starstruck. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, you guys. It was, it was fantastic to be on here.